This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Welcome along to another episode of the Big Interview podcast on Off Script. And today's special guest is a man who's led an extremely interesting life. His name is David Labrava. He's an actor, he's a writer, he's a tattoo artist, he's a motorcycle enthusiast, and he's best known for playing Happy Loman in the FX series Sons of Anarchy, the fantastically popular show that David helped create and actually co-wrote an episode in season four, the only episode I should mention, episode 10 of season four that actually won an award on the show. He's got plenty of anecdotes to share. It's the Offscript Big Interview with David Labrava. The Big Interview with Offscript. David, it's fantastic to have you on our little show. Thank you for having me. Are we on the air? We're not live on the air. We soon will be, but we're recording right now. Hello, everyone. I hope you are having a blessed day in the world, whoever this is reaching. I pray that everything is going your way. It's a weird world we live in at this point in time. It's not often that a human being like me would get a platform like this to say anything. Indeed. Everyone's like, wow, he's on TV. I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter if you're on TV, you still feel like yourself. Well, this, is, is no this is the question I've got for you, David, because, you know, a lot of for- people that we've had on this show, they've they've had very careful paths to their careers. They've they've mapped it all out, whereas you have had such a diverse career and such a such a varied life that has seen you turn your hand to so many different professions. What, what sort of when you grew up in, in Florida, what, what were your aspirations? What were you sort of dreaming about becoming? Uh, surfer. I don't know. Like, I, I ha- you know, I look back on it now. I'm fairly old. I'll be 59 in October. I look back at it now like, wow, you chased the party for years. You were either going from the party, coming from the party, planning the next party. I've been to like 33 countries. And it's just like, I look back at it now. I landed in a town that I grew up in where a lot of my friends didn't leave that town. And they excelled in the arts and music. I excelled in traveling the world and having a lot of fun and doing that sort of thing. You know what? I got to say, I said to my friend the other day, because I just got back about a year ago, and I feel like I'd never expected to land back here. And he looked right at me and goes, yeah, but you wouldn't be you. You had to go do all those things that you did. Because I left here around 32 years old. He goes, look at everybody. They're shell-shocked from never leaving here. Which, you know, they're not, but I, I get it. I have friends in Miami that never left Miami. Yeah. Uh, I think it really opens you up a great deal to travel the world. I'm always, since I'm young, I'm like, what did you do to justify your existence for the day? What did you do for yourself on this planet to justify your existence for this day? Did you create something? My mom was like the art teacher. She's like my best friend still. And I, I grew up drawing and I tattoo and write and all this sort of stuff. And it was always about creating. Yeah. Even before I left Miami, I was like, uh, I was into surfing. And when you're really into surfing, that's all you're really into. But I would draw, you know, you get your time card. I would like graffiti up my little time card and put it back on the slot. So all the time cards are yellow, but mine's all multicolored. So I was always into creating. Now I'm still into creating. Yeah, I mean, what? where do you think that drive for you to... I think you went to Amsterdam, if I'm not mistaken. And, of course, you mentioned Thailand, you mentioned Bali. Growing up in a community where the culture is very much to stay where you are and to, and to live your life in a pretty close confine, what compelled you, David, to travel the world, do you think? I, I was always into traveling. 
you know, my, my dad would take me traveling. I left home when I was like 15 years old to California, then moved to California. And um, when I went to Amsterdam, Holland, what a great country. I had a girl whose dad was a sculptor and her mom was a painter. And this girl was an incredible artist. And she said to me, you know, like in this country, uh, if you're an artist, the state would subsidize you. So my dad does a few sculptures and my mom does a few paintings. And I really took that in. I was also working in a tattoo shop. So you're drawing every day, you're painting canvases, you're trying to be a good tattooer. You're trying to learn that. And But then I saw like, I really got it. Wow, there's people that are making their living from this. Everything I do takes time. Nothing is overnight. And when I say time, every project I do takes years. I mean, the script, it'll take a year to think about it, but 90 days to write it. The book took like two years to accomplish, but when I look back on it, if I had sat down for like four or five months, I could have finished it. But you never do. Writing is procrastinating. I don't know, I got into creating. The first time I got published in a magazine, I got hooked. This guy just paid me for what I wrote. I made up a story. I told him a story at a shoot, and he was like, we need a fictional writer. And that, getting published alone was huge for me and that was back in 1990 if i'm not mistaken david wow you're good you did your research see i mean like writers live on research nothing against writers guys but i never did research i have a best-selling book i've sold two shows to the network i i write every day of my life but i write from life experience i remember i told the story we were at a, a, a for a motorcycle magazine they take a picture of a bike and i told the guy a story the the publisher and he goes like, wow, we, we need a fiction writer. And he published it. And I wrote for that magazine for a minute. And then I got a job as a cameraman. And I would write the whole thing. In ju- I did not know the elements of a script, the slug line, the character, yeah. how he says what he says, the dialogue, the action. So I would write the whole thing of just the dialogue between two people talking, and I would get all the information out. And this Zalman King, he's passed away now. He's the one who taught me with the camera. He had his, uh, he's like teaching the script writing program, final draft, which is this introduced standard. And then I just started pounding out scripts one after another because I was writing very book style. Right. Um, took a long time, like, like my book, which is a bestseller, Becoming a Son, shameless plug. Um, I remember I had written probably 80 pages and then I went back to the front. So it's 364 pages, 143,000 words. You figure a book is 80,000 words. How a short film is 84, a feature film is 85 minutes. So I went back to the front. They said, you got to make each chapter its own vignette. Each chapter has its own beginning, middle, and end. So somebody, like people have walked up to me before and said, wow, I love number 56. Wow, I love number 35. You know, and, and because uh, it resonated with them. Uh, and for you, David, what, what's what is the hardest skill to perfect? Is it is it kind of that kind of long form? You know, you're you're taking what's in your head, your imagination, your that, that raw creativity, and you're expressing it in writing, or is it the very disciplined style of, of a script? I had great people help me, like Charlie Hunnam and Jack LaJudas and Kurt. Just in the, took their time to help me. Charlie is an incredibly brilliant writer. Unbelievable. And he understands structure and all this other stuff. And he used to say to me, you're the king of dialogue. And I'm like, because I only used to write dialogue. I didn't know the other parts. But 
of everything I do, the writing is the easiest thing I do. So I'm a tattoo artist, a glass artist, a published author, a mechanic, a bike mechanic, um, writer, producer, director, actor, and I'm on the set every day. I use that Sons of Anarchy like hands-on film school because I went to hands-on motorcycle school. 36 kids started in my class. Eight made it. I was number three. And the film, it's like by Wednesday or Thursday, everybody's napping because we're doing a 14-hour day on film. Then we'd wrestle in the parking lot all night. But (laughs) that was hands-on film school. Those seven years were probably the happiest time of my life. They're still my best friends. And we talk all the time. I want to actually ask you where where your kind of passion for motorcycles comes from. I, I, I read that you were 17 years of age when you got your first Harley. I, a little bit older than that, probably. But I remember I bought from my friend from 2,500 bucks, and it's all in parts, and started putting it together in my living room, my buddy's house. And he's like, get that thing out of here. It smells like gas. I had to call my <laughs> other buddy's big brother over. Because, like, you know, kids are like, I want a 57 Chevy. I want this. You're in, like, junior high. I want that. I'm like, I want a chopper. You know, like, it's what you want. It's uh, like, I had a 57 Chevy in high school also. It's just what you're into. Like, some people, my next-door neighbors had bikes. I wanted bikes. It's, you know, it's what you see growing up. Sort of what you become in a way. It sort of just happens, that passion for the bikes, the passion to tattoo, the passion to... I didn't know that writing would become my biggest thing. The book is the most lucrative thing I ever did. Like fans wrote me, they went into it. The book is huge in like recovery and all this stuff. And so to me, that's like, wow. Cause my whole, I know, you know, life's dealt me some hits. I've had a lot of loss. We get one term on this planet to make a difference, mm. to leave a mark, which is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to write my legend I find writing to be one of my most enjoyable things. I love completing projects. That's one of my most favorite things to do is walk into that printer place and print out 102 pages of what I wrote. Many people are scared of the blank page. I attack the blank page. And you just keep writing. Edit later. Don't stop to think about it. Just keep writing all. Who cares? Do you know what, David? Because I'm someone who's struggled with that exact same thing. Writer's block, whatever you want to call it, whatever I'm doing when I was editing magazines, I would often struggle with that. And that phrase, attack the blank page, is a great help, I think, to kind of, or as, as a visual, to really just, just throw yourself into it. Because hearing you talk about the writer's room and, and kind of your own approach, it's it's a great advert for kind of embracing chaos. Because, uh, you know, the... the Living in this ordered world is actually stifling creativity. I am an agent of chaos. You know, it's cool. Like, I I had already written for a motorcycle magazine, first then a hot rod magazine for eight years when I got on the Sons of Anarchy. And I wanted to write on that show right away. I knew it right away. So I went and read three episodes real quick. Then I asked another guy, is this the formula for this show? And he said, yes. So then I went home on a Thursday, and by Sunday, I was sending out 38 pages of a show I wrote, <laughs> 42 pages. And my friend Boone called me and goes, they're going to fire you. And I said, why are they going to fire me? He goes, because you just showed them how it's done. You're paid to act, not write. And I was brand new to Hollywood, and I had no idea. And he's like, they don't like people like that. That just go do that. And because I wrote a really cool episode. But how did you go about writing that, that episode, David? I mean, how, how did you... 
I just thought up an episode. I, I saw the characters. I didn't know anything from anything, for one. I took all those characters and I wrote an episode of the show because I knew the life. So I sent that out on Sunday night to everyone. <laughs> and on Monday, Kurt came up and goes, all right, I'm going to give you a job. You could make a blog. He goes, you can't be happy. You can't be DL. You have to, you can't, I used to write under another pseudonym named Jimmy Carbone. He goes, you can't be Jimmy Carbone. You have to make a new one. So I made up Fat Bob. That was the name of a bike. He was an right. old guy. He was a welder with his wife. They never had children. They had dogs. And I made this character up. So the first time I wrote an article, I, they put it on the FX website. It's probably still there. So the first time I wrote it, I was saying all how good the show was. And Kurt came up to me and goes, you don't really believe that, do you? I go, dude, you're so far off the mark. It's amazing. This is not reality. He goes, then write that. Because if you don't be real, no one will think Fat Bob is real. For the first year, I did that for free. Like, the show would come on, and I would take notes in my hand. But then in the commercial break of the first show, I would type out the first paragraph. And then I would watch this and write it. I submit it the next morning. And... I did that for seven years. So the first year I did it free. And then they go, hey, we're going to pay you because you built such an audience. And I used to, Fat Bob would rip the show apart. What planet do these guys live on? They're committing murders in broad daylight and going right to the clubhouse and no cops are coming? Where do they live? <laughs> Mars? And some fans along the way figured out that, I, that Happy was Fat Bob. And they knew who Happy was. So for instance... Like, I was at that point living in Oakland, and, like, somebody would die of old age in Oakland. And fans would write, sorry for your loss, Bob. And I would be like, that guy knows who I am. How do they figure it out? How do I know? <laughs> and then, in the end, I'll, I'll finish up the Fat Bob thing. Because I got to tell you, talk about trust. We would stop filming. I would never even go to the rap party. The next day, I would fly to Indonesia and surf for a month after we filmed. And... FX would send me the episode on my computer the day before so I could write Fat Bob and send it back to them and get it on their desk. A lot of people didn't like that. It's funny when that last script came out, the night before the redo at like seven at night, and I'm crying my heart out because it was so heart-wrenching. It's such a well-written script. And it was the end of our journey. We had had so much fun together for seven years. And like the next day, we were all going through the read through together. Katie, Maggie, Charlie, Tommy, me, we're all crying at this table read. People would come day play, day play, meaning like they would come work for one day when they had a day off. And they would be like, wow, I've never seen a show like this before. You guys are actually like a real family, cast and crew alike. You guys are all buddies. We would go camping. We'd sleep in each other's houses. We just, uh, it was an incredible thing. And, and uh, I remember the, the, I says to everybody, I just want everybody to know that I have been happy as hell to write this for you for seven years. And I want to thank you for reading it. Oh, that's awesome. And that one, Hands, how you asked the question. So Hands was in season four, episode 10. So in season three, I'm writing Fat Bob now since the third episode of season one. Kurt says, I'm going to let you write one next year. So to write an episode means you're not going to be in two episodes because you have to sit in the writer's room for two weeks with seven other gifted writers and you're beating back ideas back and forth. And 
there's all these rules in the writer's room. And I remember the last thing Kurt said, he was a really big episode. Don't screw it up. So I got to say, I, I wrote this one scene. I must have shot 100 bullets in the scene. And, you know, you bring in your first draft and Kurt calls me and he goes, one bullet, one blank is $7. The scene you wrote costs like $38,000. He goes, you get one bullet, make it count. (laughs) Yeah, I had to make that count, but uh, you're like... uh, What was more emotional for you, finishing that script and going through that whole process or seeing the episode actually on television? Seeing your name on the screen, written by, with your name on the screen, Chris Collins, David LaBrava, and Kurt Sutter. Holy Hannah. Like, whoa, I took pictures, said that to my mom. Um, That's amazing. I love writing. That's really important. If you're laboring through your writing, it ain't for you. It has to be like, Ernest Hemingway would go through seven pencils a day. You got to love it. I love writing. It's my favorite thing to do. Um, and I love doing glass art. And, you know, like the other things, uh, I love writing. I love completing projects. You start out. I'm looking at my boards right now. But when you put that beat sheet up on the boards, you're right. It should be pouring out of you. Like every day. Like it's usually the last thing I look at before I sleep. It's usually the first thing I look at while I make my coffee is the script. It's right there. The scene I left off at. I wrote a film called Street Level that got an R rating, which is huge, from the film commission. I just completed a film where in what's called pre-production, like casting it, scouting locations, getting the schedule and budget, which is like, I hope, a million, 1.5, 1.3. And it's also a different world today than it was. Like how I said to Boone, writing is different, directing is different. I go, you know what? I'm just going to pretend it's like 25 years ago and write a movie. He goes, that's what you should do. Boone's like my best friend. We talk all the time. Well, in a way, there's more avenues today with, with obviously all the digital platforms like Netflix, etc. There's more avenues for writers to get their work out there. Uh, you don't have to go through just the one the one Hollywood channel, do you? Um, I would say there's more avenues, It's still, but it's tougher to get them on those avenues. Right. Um, because of the climate of the world today. Like, I shouldn't know what demographic or race or religion or gender the writer is when I see a script. I should see black letters on a white page and it should be based on my talent. Like, uh, are you following me? Yeah. Which I don't, uh, I I just feel like everything, like it's... It shouldn't shouldn't discriminate. I, I turned down scripts. They wanted me to direct. I said, I can't do this script justice. I don't, I don't know enough about this world to do this script justice. Like you write what you know, the first time it's all about completing a book. Now I'm writing fiction books of stories that I made up. Which do you prefer? The second one. Like to write a novel. To write things. uh, But I I definitely should write like a book called like My Time on Set. Do you have a favorite memory from being on set, David? So many, it's amazing. Try to imagine after a 14-hour day, you know, like like there's the parking spaces, you know, they're white line painted on the ground for a car, for a car, for a car. And you know how sumo wrestling is. They push each other out of the out of the thing. That's the sumo. Yeah. So after a 14 hour day, we would be unwinding in the parking lot. It's dark now. And 
these guys would be doing this thing like a sumo game, pushing each other out of the white lines, and I would never do it. And it took a long time for me to relax. The first time I did the game, I did it against Chris Reed. Great guy. Wonderful, lovely human being. He's like six foot eight, 350 pounds. Wow. I weigh like a buck 70. And so the first, he comes to me, the first thing I did was just grab him by the shoulders and step out of the way and let him just, his own energy put him out of the thing and he falls down. He's like, I can't believe it. And Tommy's like, what can't you believe? <laughs> Tommy's the king of the one-liners. I'm like, I love you, bro. He's like, of course you do. <laughs> I love those guys, though. In fact, I have a ring on my hand right now that only five people in the whole world have it. Me, Charlie, Tommy, Boone, and Ryan. And it's like, I don't know. We really shared a, p- a piece of time and space, all of us. Charlie Hunnam, he's done so fantastically in his career, hasn't he? I mean, I know he's, brilliant. He, he's straight brilliant. He, I loved, uh, I love the Arthur film, uh, the one he did with uh, Guy Ritchie. Yes, the gentleman. Also, that, he did a remake right. of Happy One, and I love the first one. The other one is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful film. When I say that, when, when um, you're when you're part, sorry, David, when you're part of a of something that, that a is that successful and b has that sense of a community spirit behind it and kind of is is just you're in your own little world. I mean, I, I, I looking in from the outside, I I can't imagine what it's like to be part of an experience like that. But the cast members of of different shows that have been incredibly successful all speak with a lot of poignance and a lot of nostalgia when they finish and and then you know you know we saw the friends reunion recently and that was a that was a weirdly nostalgic experience i know a few years back the sopranos cast got together as well 20 years after the first episode how was it for you emotionally dealing with that coming to an end and and what were your what would your own sort of view on on maybe a reunion or or getting back together with the guys in some official capacity be you mean for like an interview, not to do a show? You mean yeah, to sit and talk. kind of that that kind of thing. Yeah, similar to how the the cast of Friends got together. Just to sit and talk. Sure, I, I didn't know the Friends thing. I didn't watch that show, but yeah. Uh, also, like how I said to you when we got that last script, I mean it. Crying all night, crying at the table read the next day. Not just me, everyone, because it was like the end of our thing. Yeah, like uh, it was the end of our little journey, and we knew it. Kurt wrote an incredibly, 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 incredibly beautiful, beautiful script. I mean it. By the bottom of page one, I was crying. And so was Charlie. You know, it was just a highly emotional, very powerful script. And in real life, I think I think this gave us all a platform. Look at all the goodness Theo's doing. And it's like, you could say nothing, you could say something. You could believe in something, or you could believe in nothing. What do you want to do? I want to believe in something. I want to say something positive. I'm just a guy, man. I still feel like I was waiting for a tattoo to come in, $35 name, and I got on a national television show that became a very big thing, so now I have a voice. What are you going to do with your voice? I use my voice to help dogs because they don't have a voice. And I use my voice to try to spread positive energy. So yes, on the in, on the reunion thing, and 
the other part was like how it's impacted yeah. my life. Well, well uh, and then also from fans of the show, what have they told you, David, about about how much it means to them and why it means so much to them? What kind of things have resonated with kind of fans of the show that you've, you've spoken to? There's about things. There's about family and a lot of people. Like I was saying, you guys think the women are watching that show because there's, you know, Charlie and Tom, people. Are, women are watching that show because Katie's a killer. Women are watching that show because Maggie's a killer. Because the, sh- the women on my show are victors, not victims. Everyone writes women as the victim. I don't do that. I think that the show resonated with a lot of people on a many different levels of family. Yeah, resonated with the bike people. Let's move past them. Just the people that were about family, especially Gemma. She was really the iron fist. Her job was to hold that whole thing together. You know, I, I used to do these signings. I don't seem to get them so much anymore. I'm not concerned. And but people would come up crying. I'd be like, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. <laughs> and I find it amazing. People would, like, travel through the rain to get to this thing. they come up all soaking wet. I'd be like, you could have the picture free. Here, have it free. And the guy would freak out and be like, I, I brought these pictures extra for people like them. I don't know. I didn't have a voice before that show. Not everybody has a voice. So if you have a voice, you better be careful what you say with it. Yeah, it's you a responsibility, know? yeah. In terms, of, in, in terms of transitioning from, from writing to, to acting, I mean, not many get to experience both sides of that fence. Obviously, most writers occupy that world. Most actors occupy that world. And, and you've crossed over and done both. I mean, what was that like to to kind of go on to the other side, if you like, and, and, and act out a character? Easy. I don't know. It's easy to play pretend for me, I guess, and, you know, to read a script and just uh, so early in life, and it's pure imagination. That's it. Like, And you have to be able to develop that, and once you've developed that, you just continually hone it you're able to imprint that onto whatever it is you have to do. Everything's a character study. When I'm sitting in my car and there's six people crossing in front of me at the light, I'll look at one of them for the whole way he crosses. And I'll think about, try to imagine the darkest part of his life. Not trying to imagine the greatest part of his life. I'm trying to imagine the darkest part of his life. That's drama. You know what I mean? You're not... Mm. uh, this blue skies, everything wonderful, terrific, and happiness, that ain't going to sell. No. We need, <laughs> we need to see this other thing, you know, like how this guy's actions impacted his whole family. Looking back on your incredibly varied career, David, what, what, is, there, is there one particular achievement that fills you with the most pride? That I wrote that book. That's the one. I completed that film. How about, how about on the film street level? Like I get a call, I usually don't pick up a call unless I see the name but it had a, I was in Northern California and it was an LA number so I picked it up and the guy goes yeah I'm looking for David LaBrava I'm like who's calling he goes this is this guy from the film commission and I'm waiting for this call and I go I'm David he goes uh, okay I'm this guy from the film commission I'm about to give you your rating is there anybody like above you on this project I said no I'm top of the food chain and he goes okay I'm ready are you ready to get uh your rating would you like to write it down I said aren't you going to send me a certificate 
He goes, yes, we are, but I'd like to run this past you first. I said, did you watch my film? He goes, kid, I made everybody watch your film. He goes, I can't believe it's your first film. Every kid in America needs to see this film. And then the guy just starts going off about how he goes, oh, I'm like 63 years old. And I'm, like he loved the film. And it ended up getting picked up in 100% of the cable networks in America. And that film is like what happened to me on the Lower East Side from 7 to 8.30 one morning. Wow, I need to see this, David. Street level. Okay, do, do you know? I, I, I can find it on. I'll find it on one of the platforms online. You can find it on Amazon Prime. Amazon Xbox. Prime. Yeah, I, perfect. I, it's distributed by Freestyle Digital Media, and it's pretty cool. You know, like I got a. I, I didn't get the best deal, but it did get on the air. Like how Boone says, if you made the best movie in the world, it would only be in the theaters for one month. You got us on the air for fifteen years. Anybody in that film can go, would you like to see some of my work here? Just log on to this right here. Right. I've got a to-do list here because I've, I've got to watch Street Level. And um, your book, of course, Becoming a Son, My Journey from the Street to the Screen, is, is something that is obviously it's, it's a unique journey, but it, it speaks to a lot of, I'm sure, a lot of readers who, are, who can relate to it. Yeah. It's pretty, you know, I started that chapter to chapter. The first one is putting the baseball cards in your spokes so the bike would sound like a motorcycle you're like nine years old and you know you got ten kids it sounds like a swarm of bees coming up um I wanted the book to come out right when my movie came out Hmm. so I turned down I made some bad decisions in life looking back on it now I turned down two roles in two films that got very big and you know, you live and learn. Even even the distribution deal wasn't the best deal in the world. You live and learn. It's a, everything's a learning experience. Yeah, of course. O- always things can turn out maybe slightly differently, but uh, the fact that you've turned your hand to so many different things, that surpasses what most people accomplish because most people stay in their very narrow lane, you know. I'm definitely I'm, guilty of that. I got to say all the kids in this town that stayed in their glass lane became unbelievably fantastic glass artists. And right. And my one friend, he's my buddy, my buddy Cowboy, is just like, dude, you got plenty of time to make your glass all whatever you want it to be. You went and did all this other stuff. You've been to 33 countries. You chased every crazy dream you ever had and did it. It's okay. You got plenty of time. On the cover of the book, David, it is, uh, I'm assuming that's your dog. Um, he's not. Sitting right he's sitting right next to you. Uh, what's his name? Frank. Frank, where did the love of dogs come from? And, and started wagging. Ah, uh, uh, I'd love to meet him. We always had dogs. It's funny. We, we used to walk up to the store, and everyone got a Snickers bar, and my buddy's dog got one too, and he needed with the wrapper. <laughs> I don't know. I just like he's my best friend. They're my pal. That other little dog I have, I rescued her. She got shot in the face with a pellet, or somebody <sighs> shot her, and. I have such a bond with these two dogs that it's amazing. They're my children. We've really been through a lot. We've been on a real journey. You mentioned earlier that you, you like to help dogs because they have no voice. I mean, that's... Uh, yeah, that's yes, gen- I, I, I would like to foster more, and I will later in life. It's difficult. Frankie's got a little thing happening, so we have a real good vet. And, like, I live in a very small house. It's difficult to imagine bringing another dog into their world i live in their world yeah this is their world they get rotisserie chicken every day i don't even (laughs) eat chicken and 
That's a good. That's a good. Uh, tell you what, that's a pretty good deal. I've had friends come over. Wow, man, your dogs eat better than I do. I says, <laughs> as they should. <laughs> they deserve to. No, dogs are the best thing in the planet. We can learn so much from them. They're po- ever loyal, ever faithful, ever happy, uh, always positive. Like never let you down. They, they their eyes look at you with the truest of the truest of attention, the most unconditional love. You're right. There's always conditions with people. <laughs> well, listen, David, I, I have thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you. This, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's the morning. It's the, say, uh, I've really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for being uh, so open with us and, and uh, for, for telling so many great yarns. It's been fantastic. I'm going to leave you with one, okay? Go for it. <laughs> I'm going to tell, tell you kids a little story. It'll take about two minutes. So... On our show, most show people like you guys have a crew appreciation day. Like Kurt would get sushi and they put up a whole tent. There's like 350 people that make that show construction, grips, electricians. It's not just the cast and writers. So they had crew appreciation day every year where nobody would work and they would give out prizes. And that's like unheard of. And they have a raffle and they're giving the crew prizes a spa a this or that you know what i mean and we're the people that are picking out the tickets and we read the name of the guy right all right are you following me now i'm following you you got, you got 300 people under a tent so right in the beginning charlie and theo and everybody made an agreement to not make a big speech just to pick out the name and say the thing and in the earlier part of the night before of the afternoon before people sat down it was just me and Katie sitting there I could tell you so many cool stories it's amazing I says to Katie so if I'm because this was year number seven I go if I'm not mistaken this is the last time to thank anyone correct she goes that is correct yes so I was like you know like a Ron a lot of people picked out a name before me nobody had thanked Everybody thanked the crew because the crew worked extremely hard. And when I, like how I'm telling you the story, I do it word for word, verbatim. So it became my turn. And, you know, Paris like, okay, the next gift is going to be given out. But everybody knows him. DL, he plays happy. And I lean over to Charlie and I go, not a dry eye in the house. So I walk up and I say to them, how do you thank somebody that put you on the map, that gave you a voice, that gave you a career? And I looked right at Kurt and I go, thank you. And he was like, wow, because nobody had thanked him. And then I looked at everybody and, go, and how do you thank a group of people that took you under their wing and didn't shun you out and really taught you a craft that they had been practicing for decades? And I just looked at Katie, Charlie, Kim, Boone, each one, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So people are now looking at me like, whoa. Then I turn to Paris and go, how do you thank somebody that helped you with your life and your film career and your acumen? And I'm like, thank you. And he's speechless. And then I, I looked at everybody and I go, you know what? You guys are like a machine. In a machine, it's full of cogs. I said, you know what a cog is? A cog is a gear and one spins the other. And some are spinning faster, some are spinning slow, and some are totally spun out. 
but you guys all spin in unison and it's magical to watch and everybody freaked out wow. and then Boone stands up afterwards he was the next guy and he looks right at me and goes how am I going to follow that <laughs> and he just reads the name and that's it <laughs> that was it hey really pleasure to talk to you everybody out there is listening stay safe love your loved ones appreciate every day be the voice for dogs all animals it's the animal kingdom we are guests here you've been listening to a dubai i 103.8 podcast to enjoy lots more from dubai i in the united arab emirates just go to dubai i 1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts